There we go. Uh, yeah, starting the book of Revelation today. So if you want to take your Bibles and open them up, it's the very last book of the Bible. So it'll be an easy find for you. We are uh, singing the books of the Bible song at our house. And we're learning it at uh, middle school group on Wednesdays as well, trying to teach those little ones the book, the orders of the books of the Bible. And you got to love the very end, right? You know, first and second and third, John, Jude, and then the very last book is the Revelation, right? So, uh, oh, yes, believe it or not, there's more today. So Revelation, I don't know. If you guys have uh, experienced the phenomenon around Thanksgiving time of the turducken, anybody here? The turducken, right? A turkey, and then stuffed inside that is a chi- is, or no, it would be a duck, right? That's the duck part of the turduck. Uh, you got a duck shoved inside a turkey, and then like a Cornish game hen or something inside of the duck. It's it's really a marvelous wonder to open that up on Thanksgiving Day. And I would say Revelation is the turducken of the New Testament. If ever there was a book that could be described as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, it's the book of Revelation. All right. There's a lot to unpack um, with the book of Revelation. And, uh, And I'm excited to go through this with you. Of course, Ron Halverson was jabbing me in the ribs a couple weeks ago and said, hey, if it took you 20 weeks to go through the book of Jude, how long is it going to take you to go through the book of Revelation? You do the math, Ron. (laughs) But we're going to go ahead and get into it. My goal today is to get through the first eight verses of chapter one, where it begins by saying the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. So today, because it's a park service, it's a family service, it's a Father's Day Sunday, we're going to be doing what I would call a shorter message. (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. But... We're not really going to be diving into your typical book introduction. We're going to kind of work on that a little more next Sunday uh, as we get into this book. We're going to just dive in and look at some of the meat, though, in these first eight verses, where the first two verses, we see that uh, really rather the first two words, we see that something or someone or something and someone is going to be revealed in this book. It's the revelation to be revealed, the revelation. And in the Greek, it's the word apocalypsis. And just right now, where does that kind of take your mind when you hear that word apocalypsis? Of course, we think of apocalypse, right? Uh, Our culture is kind of enamored by the apocalypse and apocalyptic Uh, TV shows, whether it's a zombie apocalypse or nuclear apocalypse or, you know, something like that. But really those titles of that genre of book or movie, you know, it's actually off when they would use that phrase because 
Apocalypse really speaks of an uncovering or an unveiling. Uh, this word apocalypse, it, in our culture, speaks of a cataclysmic destruction, but that's not what Revelation is about. Revelation is simply an unveiling or an uncovering. It's a revelation, an apocalypse, rather than a hiding or an apocrypha. The Lord's heart in the book of Revelation is to show us something, to teach us something, to reveal something, or rather someone. He does not have a heart to hide something from us, veiling it in some sort of confusion. It's a revelation which God gave him to show his servants the things that must shortly take place. It's a necessary thing to be revealed. Something necessary is going to happen. And when it does, it'll happen shortly. You might just have a pen. Start bringing a pen and a notebook or use your phone notebook. And just maybe be making notes in your Bible and be underlining some key phrases here. Uh, As I was homeschooling my kids for the first uh, time this year. I don't know if it'll be the last time. I think it went okay. Um, But... uh, we learned about keyword outlines and to make notes of keywords as we're reading something. And, and so you might just be looking, what are some of the key words here as we go through these book uh, chapters in Revelation? One of the key words is the word shortly. Shortly, and it's, it's interesting. Here's homeschool education for you again. We also learned about topic and clinchers when you're writing. And a topic and clincher reflect or repeat key, word, key words of the text. And in a way, these, this shortly, is it's almost like a topic. It's almost like a clincher for us as we study the book of Revelation. The word shortly in the Greek, you'll love it. It's the word tacos. It might be pronounced differently. Uh, it's spelled differently, so it's probably pronounced differently. But uh, this tachos or tacos, either way, I'm probably butchering it, speaks of something that's going to be in a short time, something soon, something speedily happening, quickly or swiftly. And this tacos emphasizes imminence and expectancy. Lindsay did make little street tacos today at home. And uh, I had to go move a refrigerator in like 15 minutes. So I had to just like tacos these tacos, okay? I had to just get them down quick, go move the fridge. But I said, hey, I'm coming back. Just like Jesus says, I'm coming back. Leave the taco stuff out. I'm, and I ate three more when I got home. So I have what the doctors call a little bit of a weight problem. But uh, it's because it's of the tacos. Um, the street tacos. These things will shortly take place, speaking of imminence and expectancy. The word short here or near are relative terms based upon God's timetable, not man's timetable. For 2,000 years since Jesus came, these phrases of shortly and quickly and soon have been used... And it's important that when we speak of shortly and quickly for 2,000 years, 
We're speaking of a timetable of events happening parallel to one another rather than something running to the brink of a cliff, for instance. A lot of times when we read about the end times and things that must shortly take place, we think of like, man, we're like going to the edge of a cliff and we're going fast. It's going to happen. Well, as 2000 years go by, you're like, surely at some point the cliff's going to get here. And yet when we speak of the imminent return of Jesus, it's not so much going directly towards the brink of event, but being near it and going parallel to it so that when it does happen, it happens fast. Okay. The New Testament uses the term labor pains or birth pains to describe all of a sudden there's a buildup and boom, you're in it. And uh, we'll talk about more of that as we go through the book of Revelation. So we're running parallel to the edge of the imminent return of Christ, not necessarily towards that brink. This is an ancient Greek phrase which means quickly or suddenly coming to pass. And it speaks of a rapid execution that takes place once the beginning happens. So as Walverd says, the idea is not that the event may occur soon, but that when it does, it will be sudden. Okay? It'll happen now. And those of you that love Robert Duvall movies... One might say it's an apocalypse now. Anybody? Nobody? Didn't think so. Okay, moving right along. David Guzik says, This means that the book of Revelation is a book of predictive prophecy. It speaks of things that will happen in the future, at least from the future of the time of its writing. But it's important to show that this is the revelation number one of Jesus Christ. How sad it is when we preach the New Testament, so often preachers miss the central figure of the New Testament. The whole of the Bible, really, Genesis through Revelation, is about Jesus. That's why we practice Christ-centered preaching at Calvary, gospel-centered preaching. And especially the book of Revelation is to reveal Jesus. And so if we get all on about the signs and we get on about, you know, possible future events and what this weird thing during the tribulation might be and what this other strange thing might be, and we miss Jesus for a series of nine sermons, then we have completely missed the mark of the book of Revelation. We want to be Christ-centered in our preaching of Revelation, whether it's about the rapture of the church, whether it's about the tribulation period, the Antichrist coming on the scene, the false prophet, demons coming up out of a pit, the great white throne judgment, the second coming, the millennial reign, whatever. It's, It's all showing Jesus. So we want to preach Jesus in this series because it is a book revealing Jesus. But also, we don't want to neglect that it's additionally showing His servants these things that are going to take place. These things that will happen. We don't want to be a church that neglects this book, and we'll see why in verse 3. We want to be a church that 
hears the revelation of what's going to shortly take place. Daniel Aiken says, indeed, the theme of the book could be described as the majesty and the glory of the warrior lamb, King Jesus, who's coming again to rule and reign forever. It's a revealing. It's an uncovering. I often think of uh, the cities that have the beautiful statues in their central parks. And, you know, when the sculptors finish creating those statues, they cover it with a sheet and they have some sort of big ceremony where a band is playing. And, you know, uh, at that final moment, they all hush and awe and, and wait for the sculptor to pull the sheet off and reveal what he's made. And that's something that takes place in the book of Revelation. The sheet is pulled away. Those of you that love the Wizard of Oz, you love that climactic scene towards the end of the movie where they finally get in the Emerald City and there's thunderings and lightnings and it's, it's very similar in a way to the book of Revelation. Uh, and there's a loud voice and finally someone goes over and it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but someone goes over and pulls the curtain back and you know, there's a frantic stressed out dude with a computer system trying to control the world, you know. Um, But uh, there's a revelation of the great and powerful one in the book of Revelation. It's important to note that the point of the revelation is not an unleashing of judgment, but an unveiling of Jesus. Last scene says, our focus in studying this book should not be the symbolism as much as the Savior. It's not about the signs and wonders. It's about the second coming. And it's not the mystery of the 666. It's the marvel of the holy, holy, holy. One technical but important detail we should mention is that this is not the book of revelations, plural, but the book of revelation. It's a revelation about Jesus. And Charles Spurgeon said, how we need a revelation of Jesus. The great fault of many professors is that Christ is to them a character upon paper, certainly more than a myth, but yet a person of the dim past, an historical person who lived many years ago and did most admirable deeds by which we are saved but who is far from being a living, present, bright reality. And you know, for me, I've been studying this, uh, I've been studying the book of Revelation probably since I was 15 years old, but this week in studying it, that quote from Spurgeon really ministered to me. In a sense, it called me back to first love relationship with Jesus. I mean, I remember being a teenager, staying up all night, with my 15, 16 year old friends at a sleepover reading the book of Revelation and marveling at who Jesus was and being stirred up with my teenage friends to obey the Lord and to go and preach the gospel. And even this morning as I was praying over our text, I pray the Lord does that in our church. That he reveals Jesus to us and brings him beyond, you know, most of us aren't atheists here at the park today. Some, maybe, but most of us are not. And yet to us, Jesus is just that historical figure who did some sweet stuff and one day we'll see him again. But, you know, it's just so foggy when we think about him and consider him. 
And we just pray that the fostering of a personal relationship would be fostered again as Jesus is revealed. It's written by the book uh, by the Apostle John. It was made known, it was signified, and you might notice there in your Bible that word signified. He sent and signified it. You might notice the root word of signified is sign. He signified it to John, John the writer. I remember one of those teenagers I used to stay up reading the Bible with. He was so cool. Everyone wanted to be like him. He spurred us all on to just go follow Jesus. And he played the guitar. He spurred me on to play the guitar. And I remember one day he showed up to youth group with uh, his jumbo tailor and drop D tuned it, which gives it a real bluesy sound. And he starts playing this old song. Who's that rider? Joan the Revelator. Who's that rider? Joan the Revelator. Rats of the Seven Seals. All right? Great song. I told Johnny, could we do that this morning for worship? He never got back to me. Oh, but it stuck with me. Who's that rider? John the Revelator. John the Apostle, the Apostle whom Jesus loved, he wrote in his own book. (laughs) The Apostle who leaned against Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. The Apostle, the only Apostle who was at the cross of Calvary. The Apostle that Jesus gave charge of his mother. The Apostle who wrote the Gospel of John and then the three letters by the same name, John the Revelator. We'll learn more about John in the weeks to come. But verse 2 says, He bore witness to the Word of God. So we know the book of Revelation is authoritative. It's called the Word of God. It's called the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those are important things to notice as we're looking for canonical books. Books of the canon or books of authority. Right away it's been written by an apostle. Right away we see it's the Word of God. Right away, we see it's the testimony of Jesus Christ. And you know, for John the Revelator, it says he's a witness. And John the Revelator loved being an eyewitness. When you read the book of John and 1 John, he kind of goes on and on about that I was an eyewitness to these things. Very important as you study uh, the authority of the scripture and, and the resurrection of Jesus is that there were eyewitnesses, bona fide witnesses, who saw these things. And John was one of those. Let's go to verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Revelation is a book with a blessing. And it's the first of seven Beatitudes here in verse 3. Rather, verse 3 is the first of seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. There's a blessing. It's happy. How fortunate is the one who reads this book. And the language speaks of reading it aloud. You might notice the singularity in the one who reads it, that there would be one who reads it aloud. And then notice the plurality, those who hear the words. So 
one person reading it aloud. It doesn't have to be that way, but what we see kind of in the early church tradition was one person reading aloud and many people listening and paying attention. And so when you look at church history, it seems like there was a bit of deformation of the preaching and teaching ministry and the learning and listening from that ministry uh, there in the book of Revelation. But I want to encourage you today, Father's Day 2019, I want to speak a word of encouragement to you dads to read the word to your family. Maybe today could almost be a resolution day for you that Father's Day, one of the greatest gifts you can give your wife and your children is to wash them with the water of the word, to take the time to carve out your day for time of reading the word of God. And you might be thinking, well, where should I start? I would say start with the book of Revelation. Start, dads, with with being the he who reads and letting your family be the those who listen. And I'll tell you, your kids are going to love the book of Revelation. Do a Google image search as you're studying and show your kids kind of some of the imagery that we're reading and then encourage them. Now we're going to all go to church on Sunday. We're going to listen to the book of Revelation. I'm going to be able to teach you as I'm being taught. Start reading the book of Revelation. There's a blessing for you. I believe there will be a blessing for your family. You know, uh, we were at youth group the other day and I just kind of asked the kids like, hey guys, what, what are you reading in your time with the Lord? And the first child like, oh, I'm, I don't read the Bible. And second child, oh, I'm not reading the Bible. Third child, I'm not reading the Bible. I'm not reading the Bible. And Russell's like, I, I'm not reading the Bible. <laughs> Except with you, dad. So it's like, oh, praise the Lord. We're going through 1 Samuel right now as a family. And I'll tell you, my son Russell for years has been intrigued with the book of Revelation. He's stoked about the book of Revelation. Dads, read the book of Revelation to your kids. They're going to love it. But there's a blessing for those who read it and hear it. Fortunately, John didn't say that we had to understand everything in the book of Revelation as we read it. That's not what he said. He said, read it, hear it, and keep it. Or guard it and obey it. When we teach our children from the Proverbs, look and listen and obey. Later on in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So far, does it seem like Revelation is a book that we should skip studying as a church? So far, does it seem like something that's so terrifying, no pastor should undertake the daunting task of studying it to preach it to the congregation? No husband should read it to his wife or family. We should seal up the book and hide it till Jesus comes back. You know, the book of Revelation, Daniel's told to seal up the words. Uh, the book of Daniel, Daniel's told, but the book of Revelation, John is told, don't seal it up. Blessed is he who reads and who keeps this book. This book will bring character to the reader and the listener because that reader and listener is called to obey it. We're called to obey the word of God, not to just be hearers only. And why should we keep this as we hear it and read it? 
The end of this verse says, for the time is near. So we're in verse 3, and already we've heard that these are things that are shortly going to take place, and already we're hearing what? That the time is near. Chapter 3, verse 11 says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Chapter 22, verse 7 says, I am coming quickly. Chapter 22, verse 20 says, Surely I am coming quickly. To which John the Revelator says, Even so, come. Philippians 4, 5 says, The Lord is at hand. Hebrews 1, 2 says, He has in the last days spoken to us by His Son. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says, Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is in the manner of some, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10, 37 says, For yet a little while, and He who is coming will come, and He will not tarry. James chapter 5 says, be patient, establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He goes on to say, the judge is standing at the door. Jesus is like a 101st Airborne paratrooper waiting for the green light so he can come get us. He's at the door. Aiken says, in eschatology and apocalyptic literature... The future is always viewed as imminent. That's a good vocab word for us in our study of eschatology. Imminent. E-M-E-M-E-M. No, I don't know. Uh, I am. I have it here. But I'm going to let you figure it out. You got nothing else to do for the next 45 minutes to an hour? Oh, just kidding. Hour and a half. Okay. It's always been viewed as imminent, which means suddenly coming. The church, Aiken goes on to say, the church in every age has always lived with the expectancy of the consummation of all things in its own day. And you know what? We're going to join that party. We're going to join that group from the early church to today that he could come today. It's possible at any day. It's imminent at any day. It's a little bit hard for us to understand sometimes. Much of Revelation, though, becomes clearer as the last days approach. It's like the early stages of assembling a puzzle. you got to do the edge pers- you know, pieces first, then you get certain shapes that kind of make sense, and you turn this puzzle piece that way. And as the time goes by, as you study the word Old Testament and New, there begins to be a pretty clear picture. And I'm telling you, you're gonna, you're gonna, if you've never studied the book of Revelation, whatever your understanding of Revelation and, and, and times has been, there will be pieces put together for you as we study this book and current events together. The picture may have been a muddled mess, but as time goes on, pieces begin to be put in place. Listen to what Cyrus Schofield, who wrote a hundred years ago when he was compiling the Schofield Reference Bible, listen to what he had to say. He said, much of what is now obscure will become clear to those for whom it was written. 
as the time approaches. Those prophetic words are exactly right. Um, I believe it was Les Seen that goes on to say, now in the 21st century, what was once difficult to understand has become easier and more relevant. Especially when you think of Schofield existing 100 years ago, he didn't have the nation of Israel to look towards. Since May of 1948, Israel, which is a major timepiece in eschatological understanding, has become a nation again. And essentially it's believed that was clicking the stopwatch on end times uh, movement. And, and that's been, you know, you do the math, 60 something years ago, right? 60, 70, 70, 71, two, two years ago. Okay, 71, thank you, Daphne. I'm like, subtract, carry the seven, and I think we're there. Okay. You know, we'll study this later, so I'm not gonna totally get into it. Second Peter chapter three, verse three, on through 13 is is very important for us in understanding this shortly taking place it says scoffers will come in the last days saying where's the promise of his coming so something we need to know about the imminent return of jesus is that scoffers are going to scoff so if you know anyone that's scoffing about the imminent return of jesus thank them you are fulfilling prophecy about the end times coming people love it when you do that The Bible talked about you being a jerk. Okay, forget it. Doesn't say jerk, it says scoffer. Okay. Then something we need to note that Peter tells us, that the Lord's time frame is different than ours. That the Lord's time frame is a year is as one day, or rather one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years is as one day. So the Lord is on a different timetable than we are in a different realm we need to know that the lord's not a slacker peter tells us in 3 9 he's not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness but he's long suffering towards us he's patient not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance and a final thing you need to note as we begin to study end times eschatology Peter tells us, if all of this is going to be happening, what manner of persons ought you to be in conduct and godliness? You know, in the revelation of Jesus and the end times, things that will shortly take place, the intent was never that we draw away from the church and get away from church fellowship so we can spend more time on our weird, glittery end times website and YouTube channel and just get all wacky on this kind of stuff. People that study end times are some of the weirdest people I know. We don't want to go there. A lot of times they're the most unloving people that I know. They're the most distant and isolated people that I know. And sometimes they're the most carnal people that I know. And you know, the New Testament says in multiple places, if Jesus is coming back soon, what manner of people ought we to be in conduct and godly living? Amen. Okay, we're going to kind of hustle because I think the Lord really wants us to get through verse 4. You guys cool with hustling a little bit? John, verse 4, to the... Did I say verse 4? I want to get through verse 8, but we are on verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from he who was and is and who uh, is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne... Uh, We're going to see this description of Jesus again later on. 
Uh, and so we'll study it later on, not on Father's Day Sunday, but he who was and is and is to come, just sovereign God over creation, sovereign God over eschatology and prophecy. There's a little interesting note there that there are seven spirits before his throne. Some believe this is a reference to the seven archangels of Jewish tradition. Others see them as part of a heavenly entourage that have a special ministry. I've always personally understood it as the sevenfold, seven faceted ministry of the Holy Spirit mentioned in Isaiah chapter 12. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. There's some different understanding as to what this seven uh, spirits is. That's my understanding as I've studied it. Um, And we're going to move on. Verse five. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us in his own blood. So verses four and five is a Trinitarian statement. It's a Trinitarian greeting. We have the father, the spirit and the son and a beautiful description is given of the son here. Number one, that he's the firstborn from the dead. And you know, the cults will take that phrase and say, ha, see, he was born at one point. He was a created being. But they don't understand to do the work of word study in which they'll find it's not speaking of order of birth, but order of rank. He's the first ranked or he's the superior one who rose from the dead. First of all, he's not the first one who is risen from the dead. However, he's the first one who rose from the dead and stayed alive and never died again. He's the first ranked. He's the first fruits, the New Testament says. And Colossians tells us it's so that in all things he can have the preeminence and the highest place. Not only is he the firstborn, but he's also the ruler over the kings of the earth. That's a pretty neat statement, isn't it? It speaks of that he is the chief. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Probably 15 years ago, Lindsay and I loved this song written by Dashboard Confessional. And there's a phrase in the song where he says, you're the best one of the best ones. And I always love that. I always like to tell Lindsay, honey, you're the best one of the best ones. But you know, that's Jesus. He's the chief. He's the king of all the kings. He's the Lord of all the lords. He's the best one of the best ones. And I kind of pictured in my own silly way here when John goes on to say to him who loved us I pictured like a best man standing up at a wedding and raising his glass we got to celebrate last night with Fred Genevieve as he became an American citizen this week isn't that awesome 
America. Okay. And we all raised a glass to Fred. Said, to Fred, to Fred. And then he stood up and saying, I'm proud to be an American. It was a moving moment for all of us. That might not have happened, but. You know, in a sense, it's, it's John the Revelator lifting a glass and toasting Jesus, giving him glory, ascribing greatness, lifting him up and saying, you know what? I'd like to propose a toast to him who loved us. Did you know Jesus loves you today? Christians. Did you know Jesus loves you? Have you forgotten that? Have you moved away? That's elementary. I'm on to other things now. Don't get away from that. Jesus loves you. Or rather, let's go with the tense used here. He loved you. He loved you. It's not so much in the past tense, but it's in the aorist tense. Wow, Rory, that's incredible. Could you explain that to me? Yes. Yes, I will. The aorist tense is used by the writer to present the action of a verb as a snapshot event. Okay? So, yes, he loved you, but he loves you and he will love you. It's this panorama. It's this snapshot that you are loved. He loves us. It's evident because he died on the cross for us. It says that he washed us from our sins. Do you see that? Not only did he love us, but he washed us from our sins. The language there speaks of he took our sins away from us. He took our evil guilt and failure away from us. And how did he do that? In his own blood. In his own blood. It came from his veins, through his heart, to you, to wash away your sins. He died as a sacrifice, the language speaks. And maybe you'll just close your eyes right now and listen to this hymn that speaks of the washing from our sins. It says, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know, in the Greek, the word sin is hamartia. And when I was learning Greek a long time ago, I learned it through a picture program that would draw pictures for you to help you understand and what do you think the picture was of hammer tia or hammer toa? It was a hammer crushing your toe. All right? <clears throat> your guilt and your sin and your failure, it's like, a, it's like a painful wound from a hammer to the toe. But you know what? Jesus came to wash away your sins. He came to make you whole again. And the hymn goes on to say, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can my sin erase. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of works. Tis all of grace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so, you guys, are you aware of your guilt, your failure, your sin, your rebellion? You know what you've done. You know your sin. You can know for certain He knows your sin. Have you had it washed away from His blood? By His blood? You know, it's interesting. There's one letter difference from the word washing from our sin and the word loosing us from all our sin. So some guys don't really know like, well, does he wash us from our sin or does he loose us and free us from our sin? And the answer is yes. He washes us from our sin and he frees us from our sin. Today, as we close up here, we've got a special thing we do at the park and it's something we do as Christians, really. It's baptism. And we've got a... a, Prineville baptism set up. We've got our horse trough over there and we want to make available baptism for anyone who professes Jesus as the Lord of their life and as the Savior from their sins. And as we study Revelation 1 here about being washed from our sins by the blood of Jesus, it's interesting because baptism is almost the same picture for us. In Acts chapter 22, verse 16, it says, And why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. I want to ask you today, and maybe today is the first day for you, is Jesus your Savior? Are you aware of your sin and your rebellion? And have you had your sins washed away by Jesus? Today can be the day for that. All you've got to do is ask Jesus right where you're at. I'll take some of that washing. Will you wash away my sin? I want to turn from my sin as you clean me from my sin. But not only that, we can be baptized as a symbol of the washing from your sin. I want to ask you today, since you've believed in Jesus, have you been baptized with water? I, I was actually the pastor of this church when I was baptized with water since I believed. You can go ahead and leave now. You're like, whoa, this guy obviously believes the Bible. I was baptized as a kid, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't like grasp the gospel. And I just knew that the Lord for years convicted me that I needed to be baptized. And one time, it was the year I, before I moved here, My pastor taught on baptism and oh my goodness, my heart was about to explode out of my chest. I knew I needed to go down and I took my shoes off and I was going down to baptize and I was a pastor at the time of another church 
and uh, youth pastor. And I just was like, you know what? Everyone's going to watch me and be like, oh, isn't he on staff here? Blah, 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 blah. And I turned around halfway down and went back and put my shoes back on. And for years till 2012, the Holy Spirit was just like, you haven't been baptized since you believed in the washing away of your sins by the blood of Jesus. So finally, I was in Israel at the Jordan River at the spot where Jesus was baptized. And I just had to confess to the whole tour bus, I need to be baptized right here, right now. And I want to encourage you today. Some of you have been Christians for years. Why are you not being obedient in this area? This is an area that's one of the first things Jesus calls us to do since we've believed. And if you're obedient, man, if you can cruise down in your clothes and get dunked in front of a bunch of people on a main street corner, I'm telling you, that's just the beginning of all kinds of radical opportunities of obedience that God wants to to use in your life. And some of you, you're struggling with obeying God in the Bible because you've never obeyed God in the most basic elementary principle of Christian faith. And that is, I want you to go in front of people and I want you to demonstrate that you have been crucified and buried with Christ Jesus in the waters of baptism, but you're no longer dead. You're alive. You have a new life. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, you are risen to new life. And the life that you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God. So I want to encourage us as we close and we have Johnny come up. I forgot to set my timer today, so I have no idea where I But I'm reading the room and you guys are doing pretty good. Some of you. And as we close with the final song or two, Johnny might have to loop back through some of the other songs he did today. As we close today, maybe today here at Pioneer Park would be the day that you have your sins washed away. Where you put your trust in Jesus, the firstborn from the dead. First one who rose from the dead and the first ranked of all creation, you put your faith in Him for your sins to be forgiven. And you would just receive by faith. Right now, maybe even where you're at, you would just bow your head and just close your eyes and just pray. You just pray, Jesus, I know that I've been a rebel against You. And my sin separates me from relationship with you. My sin separates me from eternity with you. But what Rory read today from Revelation is that you love me. That you love me. That you washed me from my sins and removed my sins from me because of the blood that you shed at the cross. Will you forgive my sins, Jesus? Will you wash away my sins? Will you remove them from me as far as the east is from the west? Take my sin away today. And you can just believe today that as He hears you pray that out to Him, it's done. It's done. Your sins are washed away. And now I would invite you 
And anybody else who's never been baptized since believing this promise of forgiveness of sins and washing of sins, I would invite you to join me at the waters of baptism during these songs. And we're going to go ahead and pivot our chairs and kind of pivot and we can kind of surround the trough. That's the Lord saying, somebody needs to be baptized today and they don't want to. We're going to just pivot. We're going to face the trough and kind of surround the trough. We're just going to give time for the Holy Spirit to move. Just work obedience in the lives of Christians here today to make a public stand for Jesus. So let's go ahead. Let's pivot and we'll close with these songs and with baptism.